The scripture reading today is found from the book of Acts 21, verses 17 through 36. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to visit James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they praised God. Then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews, and they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Join these men. Go through the rite of purification with them and pay for the shaving of their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself observe and guard the law. But as for the Gentiles who have become believers, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, having purified himself, he entered the temple with them, making public the completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice would be made for each of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, who had seen him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is a man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. More than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Immediately he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came, arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When Paul came to the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, 
I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, would you open our minds and lead us into your truth? For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's a lot to consider as we listen to the scriptures today. The threat of imprisonment or death because of religious persecution is not likely on the horizon for people sitting in the room that believe in Jesus. And yet, in many parts of the world, this is and could be the case today. It takes a minute for us who live in a different context and practice our faith with different circumstances than what we see in the text to relate to what we hear in these words. My hope is that we will be able to see the larger picture of God's work in the world and gain a greater appreciation for what it means to follow Jesus in the world as we observe Paul seeking to do so with his particular calling. We enter our text in Acts today with a word of greetings, warm greetings, and welcome. And then what ultimately develops is violent rejection for Paul. This is a challenging text, and it is a place in the book of Acts where the narrative slows down significantly so that we do not miss what is happening. The events that take place here that bring about Paul's imprisonment become a point of reference in later sections where Paul makes a defense of his ministry. The context highlights the tension that resides in the burgeoning Jesus movement that is welcoming all peoples, Jew and Gentile, to be known as God's people. And yet, it still is very divided as the newness of that expansive welcome is working its way by God's spirit into the resistant lives and communities where it still feels like a threat. Let's take a minute to enter the story and highlight some of the key features that give the story its color and drama. We will then take a few moments to consider some cautionary items and some ways of living into the story that I believe this text invites us to consider. Preceding this text, we follow Paul and his companions as they make their journey towards Jerusalem. And last week, we looked at the text at the end of chapter 20, where Paul is embracing and giving heartfelt, tear-filled goodbyes to beloved friends in Ephesus. And at the start of chapter 21, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem and concluding his third missionary journey with much travel along the way dire and dire warnings and, and concerns around threats that would await him in Jerusalem. And also, those that love him pleading with him to not go. These are heart-wrenching goodbyes with a recognition that only suffering and trouble is in front of Paul. His determination is steadfast, and in verse 13 he says, 
What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. They go from that place, and Paul, they arrive in Jerusalem with warm greetings, and then Paul goes and visits the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 19, Paul related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It is interesting to note how quickly the elders transition from a response of praise to God upon hearing Paul's report to an anxious reply of addressing potential danger. There are certainly many aspects of Paul's own recounting of what has taken place that would raise likely some significant concern. There were riots in Antioch, stoning in Lystra, beatings in Philippi, more riots in Thessalonica, being run out of town in Berea, court cases and anti-Jewish violence in Corinth, a citywide riot in Ephesus, and threats from Jews plotting against Paul along the way. The movement of the Spirit to expand the welcome of God and Jesus was not received without significant resistance. The grace of God that upends unjust social structures, extends dignity, and disrupts the status quo is not always a welcomed message. We will touch on this in a little bit. So the elders, in hearing Paul's report, move quickly to the potential danger of threat. Concern is palpable. Why do, what do we think will actually happen in Jerusalem with rumors about Paul being spread, that he is actively dismantling Jewish identity with the Jews of the diaspora, the Jews that live among Gentiles outside of Jerusalem? They know that Paul is in danger. Let's just review what the perceived threat of Paul and the perceived threat to Paul is. First, Jewish identity. Ever since the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people had come to agreement about how to preserve their identity as a minority group. And they came up with basically four primary things. Circumcision, sacred time or keeping the Sabbath, one temple and one God in Jerusalem, and keeping kosher. Their accusation against Paul is that he was one by one dismantling the Jewish customs and Torah observance that ensured Jewish people maintained their identity and recognition from the empire while functioning as a minority group. And this was a point of serious contention for the Jews in the recent past with actual military revolts to preserve this identity. And it continued to be a possible threat that Rome kept close eyes on. We see this even in our story today. Second, we are in Jerusalem, and this is the place of gravitational pull for Jewish identity. It is the place of political identity and hope, and the place where any revolt or effort to overthrow the Roman oppressor would erupt. The Christian movement starts in Jerusalem, and it is at its outset a Jewish movement. And it's still here in Jerusalem where the struggle to practice the new unity of Jew and Gentile as one in Jesus is a significant struggle and continues to have resistance. Third, it is likely the time of a festival. The narrator mentions in the previous chapter 
how Paul is seeking to get back to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And with a festival, there are a lot more Jews traveling from far-flung places of the Roman Empire to be in Jerusalem. The city would be crowded, and it makes sense that Jews from Asia are there. And it makes sense that the fervor around Jewish identity and the frustration around any threat to it is at a high level of sensitivity. And the crowd mentality is for sure at play. The elders know that Paul is not actually dismantling Jewish identity, but the rumor is out there and considering the context is hard to put down. So their ploy is to present Paul as an observer and guardian of Jewish identity by having him participate in a purification rite at the temple. And he publicly accompanies other men that are under a vow and pays for the shaving of their heads. Now, Paul is agreeable to the plan, and I don't believe it's disingenuous. He, he does believe in the importance of Jewish identity, and even more so, the principle of love or the law of Christ that now compels him to do such things on request. He, he wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, I became as a Jew to the Jews so that I might win more Jews. This is not just compliance or people-pleasing, but a removing of unnecessary obstacles so that people can hear the good news of Jesus unhindered. This little glimpse of Paul highlights a beautiful feature of a life united to Jesus and his purposes, setting aside personal preference and self-interest and considering the good of others, making the way for others to know and hear about Jesus in an unhindered way. If only we had more of that. If only I could embody that more, that sense of lack of self-interest, preference for others. And I pray that as well for our church and for myself. Before Paul goes from them, they remind him that they are still holding to and want to reaffirm the guidance they've given to Gentile believers. Gentiles will not be required to assume a Jewish identity in order to become followers of Jesus, but they will need to move away from the practices that have been common to them in pagan worship. There's still much complexity and nuance to this newly forming community of, Jewish, of Jesus followers that are, that are unified, not because of backgrounds or because of uniformity around their practices, but because of Jesus and what he has done, the spirit that has been given and the kingdom he is calling them toward. For Paul, the challenge is that the rumor against him in Jerusalem is too deep set. And this effort to put forward Paul as a guardian of Jewish identity will not work. As Paul is completing his purification rite in the temple, Jews from Asia spot him in the temple and stir up the whole crowd to violently seize him. Their accusation is found in verse 28. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere, maybe a slight exaggeration, against our people, our law, and this place. He's essentially dismantling Jewish identity as we know it. And more than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. It says the whole city was aroused and rushed together. They seized him, dragged him from the temple, shut the temple doors, 
before they started the process of trying to beat him to death. The closing of the temple doors, the place where God's presence was known and celebrated. It's a new era where the closing of the temple doors does not hinder the movement of God, the movement of his spirit. During the Pentecost festival, where just years prior, the first disciples of Jesus received the gift of the spirit, we now understand even more the movement of God and the presence of God that is beyond the temple and is now spread across the known world through the community in Jesus that is united by his spirit. This accusation of profaning the temple is not true. And, it's, and it is ironic because as Paul is completing a purification rite, the crowd is acting profane. And it is Paul's character that is desecrated and defamed, not the temple. This is Paul's last time ever seeing inside the temple. The Roman tribune quickly arrives to stop the beating and they pull Paul out of the fray. And this is because, as I mentioned earlier, the Romans were always on the ready, especially during festival time, to clamp down on any revolt or riot. They intentionally had a large military unit stationed adjacent to the temple court and could quickly address any problem. The crowd is bloodthirsty and feels justified due to their belief in Paul's profane behavior in their holy place. The Roman tribune cannot make sense of it and just wants to end the uproar and so takes Paul bound up and out of the mob to be taken to the barracks. Paul's life is preserved, but the threat perceived by James and the elders is real. And the warnings that were given to Paul as he journeyed toward Jerusalem were right. He would face danger and imprisonment in Jerusalem. I simply want to highlight two cautionary notes about reading this story. Upon first reading the story, there's a lot of activity of Jews behaving badly. Violence and what looks like mob justice. And as we read this story today, a challenging aspect of our world is the prominence of anti-Semitic ideology and behavior. The Christian church in many places has adopted this in horrendous ways that are counter to and blind to our origins. This text, along with the gospel accounts of Jesus's unjust trial and suffering, are not recorded for us to have a rationale for a despise of Jewish people. The reality is that the story of Christianity is very Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. The apostle Paul was a Jew. And it is the active welcome of Jewish people towards Gentiles in response to the prompting of God's spirit that propelled a new expansive movement in the first century of inclusion and welcome that is spread across the globe. Acts provides a glimpse into the rocky start and challenging way that that expansion of God's welcome took hold in society. If you are not Jewish and are Christian, there's much gratitude we ought to have for our Jewish ancestors in the faith who did the hard work to fight for a unity that was deeply challenging for them to accomplish. The problem of a Christianity that tries to divorce itself from its Jewish roots is that it is a quick road anti-Semitism. A second cautionary item is that we see in much of Paul's story where God is moving. There's often uproar and dis, uh, disruption 
And at times there's violent resistance. Some people upon reading these texts presume that a proof of God's work in and through them is that they can cause an uproar or are disruptive to the status quo. Causing an uproar does not prove that you are following God's movement. In our current day, people in the name of Jesus and for what they feel are moral causes are tempted to pursue disruptive behavior and surprise, surprise, experience resistance. This is not the same as what we see happening with Paul or with Jesus or with the martyrs of the church. The Christian movement follows a humble servant king whose embodiment of the good news is the path of humility, suffering, and death on a cross. Not shrinking back from speaking the truth in love, but also not riling the crowd as a means to usurp power. What we see in Paul as a messenger of this good news of the kingdom of God breaking into the world is that he is embodying the contours of a cross-shaped life, a life that is now defined by Jesus's very suffering. This is part and parcel of being a messenger of God's world-shaking news and the world-transforming news that Paul was carrying forward in Jesus. You will experience the resistance that Jesus did. You will be misunderstood, despised, rejected. And this is the way that God's messengers, the prophets, through time have been received, resisted, and set aside. This is what Jesus warns us in the gospel text that was read earlier. This is the struggle, though, of Peter in the garden as Jesus is being arrested. The temptation is to grab the sword and fight for the cause. But this is counter to Jesus. The challenge in some parts of the Christian church today is a desire to progress toward greater prominence, greater positions of influence and power. But this is not the way of Jesus in the world. Jesus invites us to the way of the cross, humble service and faithful presence. What we observe in the movement of God's spirit with the followers of Jesus is that they are carrying forward, bearing witness to, and embodying a message that transforms communities, families, and individuals. And what is this transformation characterized by? It's characterized by peacemaking, costly forgiveness, humble service, radical generosity, giving dignity to people who have long been looked down upon, fighting for a unity that only makes sense in Jesus, and so much more. This sort of transformation experience, this sort of transformation experiences resistance at every level because at its core, it is resisted at the level of the human heart. It challenges our absorption with self and the question of what's in it for me. It calls forth love, and a love that even extends to our enemies. It envisions a flourishing life, not just for me and my tribe, but for the world. It calls for ultimate allegiances that are not bound by the power struggles of our world, but centered on the God who is making all things new in Jesus by his spirit. This is the movement of God that Paul is compelled by a movement that sees Jesus's resurrection as the linchpin of history and understands that all history is now moving towards a day when everything that is broken will be set right. 
The challenge for us today is to consider how this world-changing news of this crucified, risen, ascended Lord Jesus is calling forth transformation in, in us, in our communities. God's Spirit is moving, and it will confront and challenge us. The invitation is ever-present to hear and to respond, to move towards love, to move away from self-interest, and to follow Jesus into the world. Rowan Williams, in his book, Being Christian, writes about baptism and talks about this dynamic of those who identify with Jesus. And he says, the baptized person is not only in the middle of human suffering and muddle, but in the middle of the love and delight of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That surely is one of the most extraordinary mysteries of being Christian. We are in the middle of two things that seem quite contradictory. In the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the middle of a world of threat, suffering, sin, and pain. Because Jesus has taken his stand right in the middle of those two realities, that is where we take ours. As he says, where I am, there will my servant be also. This can be good news for the of the, this can be the good news of Christian faith for our world. Identifying with and truly following after Jesus will lead us into the places of pain, suffering, and potential threat. But we move forward with the deep resources of God's love and acceptance and an enduring joy that can, cannot be contained, cannot be held down. You may have seen the reflection quote in your bulletin in the very beginning of your bulletin that highlights our challenge with this way of following Jesus. Uh, David Benner in his book, Surrender to Love says, in spite of how central the cross is in the Christian story, Christians are always tempted to minimize its importance in their own journey. We want a spirituality of success and ascent, not a spirituality of failure and descent. We want a spirituality of improvement, not a spirituality of transformation. But the way of the cross is the way of descent, abandon, and death. This is the foolishness of the gospel. Benner speaks to this challenging feature of the good news of Christian faith is not a path of ascent, but of descent. It is shaped by a cross. This reality of Christian faith is deeply challenging to our presumptions about how we envision a secure and happy life in the world. Each week, we go from this place, we are sent out with God's blessing, and we do so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the sign of the cross. We make the sign of the cross over us all. And this is no insignificant thing. It's a reminder that our lives are now united to the Trinitarian God, the one who humility pursues a broken world even to the point of death so that we may know life and transformation. So I pray for us that God's Spirit opens us to know more of his life and transformation 
as we together seek to follow Jesus today and in the weeks to come, the places of pain, places of difficulty, the places where God's love needs to extend, place where we need to be present. I pray that for all of us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.